This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. The Central American migration is the Emma Lazarus migration. These people are somewhat tempest-tossed. But the dominant narrative of migration to the United States then and now has been strivers, has been people who say, I'm not going to stay here. I, I will get up and move to go someplace better. Okay, I'm here today in the Dodge 112 studios with Roberto Suro, who's a professor at the University of Southern California, and he has appointments at the Annenberg School for Communications and Journalism and the Saul Price School of Public Policy. He's also, since 2011, has been director of the Thomas Rivera Policy Institute. He helped found and direct the Pew Hispanic Center and for many years was a reporter for the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, and other journals. Uh, Roberto, really great to have you here with us today. Great to be with you, Alex. We have a lot to talk about. Here we are just a week or so before the election. Who knew we're back talking about immigration and caravans and things like that. Uh, so how did we get here? How is it that immigration, once again, is a major issue in the U.S. electoral cycle? Well, the, um, the easy one-word answer to that is Trump who um, has made a specialty of, of making immigration an issue, particularly in the close of campaigns. Uh, so it's not surprising. And then uh, the caravan provided him really an ideal occasion. Uh, it, was, it was tailor-made for his brand of immigration politics, and he's exploited it um, as much as he can. Will it be effective? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's certainly the strategy is uh, to use it to rally the Republican base. And that can be a very effective strategy in a midterm election where, you know, there are low turnout elections. The important issue is not what people think about uh, the issues, but whether they're willing to go to the ballot boxes to vote on those issues. Uh, and immigration is an activating issue for a lot of Republicans. So the argument would have to be that somehow Republicans who otherwise wouldn't have voted will now come out to vote because Trump has made caravan front and center. That's the claim? I mean, that's one argument. The other is um, that another Trump strategy is just to dominate the conversation, just to take over, uh, to grab the spotlight and to define the agenda. Um, and he's and he's very good at that. So by talking about the caravan, it pushes other stuff off. Right. So we're not talking about democratic issues. We're not talking about health care. We're not talking about the tax cut. We're not talking about uh, criminal justice reform. We're not talking about all kinds of climate issues. Climate change. Yeah, climate change, nothing. We're talking about uh, a few thousand Hondurans walking through Mexico. How far away are those Hondurans? Um, I, you know, at last, last sighting, I'm not sure. I think, you know, still about a thousand miles. So a good month or two of walking. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't actually know that the, the speed over ground of a migrant caravan, I'm not sure if it's a month. I think people were talking about less. But the point is that Trump has the benefit of uh, talking about a huge threat, uh, which of course is not a threat at all, but wouldn't even arrive until several weeks after the election to know whether it really was a threat. Well, it's much more effective politically when it's not here. A threat narrative grabs people when it's hypothetical, when it's prospective, when it's to come. 
it's it's when threats are real, then they can be measured, and you and you you have something to quantify it. If you're just trying to scare people with a boogeyman, it's better that the boogeyman is vague, is off in the distance. You don't know exactly what it's going to be, so you can make it seem really really scary. But the seven thousand people—that's maybe a large number. Not when you put it in the context of a million people getting green cards this year, uh, several hundred thousand people stopped at the border by the border patrol. But it, as a group, it looks large. But the pictures when the press goes there, these are women and children and 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 men who are looking for work or fleeing violence. They're not carrying guns. They're not organized in any kind of way. How is this perceived as a threat? How does how does Trump make that into a threat? Well, I mean, this is perceived as a threat, like many other migration emergencies have been in the past. Um, so uh, a few thousand Haitian rafters back in, I mean, olden days create a huge threat. Um, a few thousand Cuban rafters um, were perceived as a threat, drove uh, the Clinton administration into action because of the perceived political danger. So it's not the people. Um, it's the image of something out of control, um, of a, a human force that is chaotic. Um, it's the image of um, a country that should uh, ostensibly be able to uh, direct who crosses its borders and who doesn't. Uh, being at the mercy of people from the outside who are saying, I'm coming in. So the, the, the actual, I mean, we have to distinguish between reality and politics here. Um, in the autumn of an even-numbered year, we're not talking about reality. Uh, we're talking about the ability to generate emotions. Uh, and images of migrants offshore, away from the country, coming towards us like a hurricane, um, on a track, uh, and they're heading in. It's Cat 5 right now, huh? Yeah, right. It yeah. seems like a Cat 5. It could be a rainstorm when it arrives. Well, that doesn't matter. What matters now is the perception. And this, is, this has happened. Um, there are any number of administrations that have responded the same way. In 1994, facing a midterm election, President Clinton you know, cl uh, clamped down on Cuban rafters out of fear that the image of failing to control migration uh, would cost him politically. You know, something else about, these, about the Hondurans is that they are brown-skinned, brown-faced, and I wonder if this is really a kind of Willie Horton move. Well, I mean, you know... It, the history of immigration in the United States is intertwined inextricably and always will be with race. So it's race always is a factor in immigration. It has been, you know, since the Chinese Exclusion Act and on down through uh, uh, 130 years but, of history. But when you can combine race with threat, you've really got a powerful image, right? Yeah, I mean, race plus threat in October of an election year is about the best combination you could you could have if if your way of getting people to the polls is out of fear. Now, the Democrats have said almost nothing about the caravan. They've been silent. They've been off talking healthcare, 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 and occasionally bad tax cut. Why is that? Well, it, it's for um, there are two principal reasons. One. Uh, a strategic decision was made um, over the summer 
to focus specifically on healthcare and in particularly pre-existing conditions as the primary issue. Um, part of that was based on a conclusion that Trump's immigration policies, including the quite cruel family separation policy that generated all kinds of pictures of children in cages and such, had really not moved the needle in terms of, um, of, of political preferences. Um, the, the conclusion the Democratic strategists made was that immigration was not moving swing voters. So that was one idea to put it off to the side. The other is that the Democrats really didn't have much of an argument, um, in part because uh, under the Obama administration faced its own Central American crisis and did some of the very same things that Trump is trying to do. Not as extreme as family separation, but putting people in detention centers with the idea that that would deter others from coming, uh, asking the Mexicans to get tough, uh, which they did, uh, sometimes quite brutally in terms of uh, deporting people and sort of somewhat turning them over to the hands of uh, smuggling cartels. So they didn't, the Democrats really didn't have an argument and they don't have they don't have an affirmative argument. They don't have a way of saying, well, this is what we would rather do um, than what Trump is doing. And so um, rather than fight something with nothing, they chose to change the subject. Or tried to change the subject. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, so let's assume the election's over, something's happened, maybe the Democrats have taken the House back, uh, and now there is a push for a, um, a serious discussion about immigration in the country, if that's possible with the current administration. Uh, still being still being there, um, can comprehensive immigration reform uh, return as a, as a possible uh, uh, strategy going forward, or do we need something else? Well, um, I mean, my advice to immigration rights advocates would be never to utter the words "comprehensive immigration and reform" in that order. Just let it go. It's a dead letter. It's been beaten to death, and it didn't work. Um, so where do you, I mean, you could, you could advocate for the same policies, just don't call it that. Um, so, and also the issues that were front and center in that debate, the debates of um, the end of the Bush administration and in 2013, 2014 under Obama, primarily focused on the Mexican labor migration. Uh, and how to channel what had been an unauthorized flow into legal channels and what to do with the large population of people who, who are, had come um, out of status and were unauthorized here, how to get them on a pathway to some kind of legal status, if not citizenship. Those issues aren't the pressing issues now. Uh, the migration from Mexico is basically over. It's been it, it 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 started declining ten years ago and shows no sign of reigniting. So let's just say it's done. So that's no longer pressing. What's pressing is a very very different subject, which is the Central American migration. So the the tools that were under debate for the last 10, 12 years really aren't relevant now, um, and we have to start a new debate. We still have the problem of. 10 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. And I think the data now shows that most have been here for more than 10 years. Right. So, so that, that's something's got to be done about that eventually. Eventually. But they've been yeah. here for a long time and no one's done anything about it. And it, it really hasn't 
caused that much of a problem. So you're saying the problem with Central America is that this will not be the last caravan. We'll continue to see people marching. It certainly seems that way. I mean, we've had periodic surges of migration out of Central America since 2014. And there was a long migration before that. People forget that there are over 3 million people born in the Northern Triangle countries, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Guatemala, living in the United States and have been for a long time. Um, so there's a very stable, large population here. This has been going for a long time, taking different forms, and the migrations mutated under different conditions. Uh, but there's no reason to assume that this is the last of it. Um, you know, are we past the beginning? I don't know. This could be the beginning of something that's going to last. I mean, think in terms of the Mexican, this migration is already 30 years old. Uh, the Mexican migration lasted for 40, 50 years almost. So th this, this is, could have a, a ways to go. And the situation in those countries is deteriorating, if anything, not getting better. Okay, well, we've put huge new resources uh, at the border, uh, whether we build a wall or not. Uh, apprehensions are way down on the southern border over the last 20 years, slightly come up in the last year or two. What is a policy, what are a set of policy options for dealing with what you're describing as this new reality of the flow from Central America? What's a rational immigration policy? Right, so rational, not necessarily politically viable, um, would be to start with uh, by addressing the root causes of the migration. Um, start by saying we're actually kind of lucky because these are small countries with relatively small populations. Um, so trying to get to fix the economic conditions would not be wildly expensive. Um, establishing uh, a rule of law, uh, ensuring that governments can perform their first duty to protect public safety, that could take a while. It could take 20 years because it's it's so deteriorated. Um, and the and we're very near having failed states in some of these places where the government simply, can, there are territories where the government is unable uh, to guarantee an individual safety. So that's going to take a while. Um, and in the meantime, we have to find um, a way of dealing with people who are anxious to leave those places. I favor um, a statutory fix. Congress declaring a special case, something that the United States has done repeatedly in the past, um, and to establish there are all kinds of ways of making up visas. We have an insanely complicated uh, visa system with all kinds of categories uh, for special cases. So uh, creating one, Alex, you could do it. Um, you could write up what this visa category would look like this afternoon um, and draft it into statutory language tomorrow. So it's, we're not talking about rocket science here. You know, what are we talking about? 30,000, 40,000 people a year, maybe 50 for the first couple of years? I mean, we're talking, you know, if you said we're going to admit 300,000 people over the course of the next five years, six so, years. So get rid of the diversity visa and turn it into a Central well, American you, humanitarian yeah, visa. Yeah, you create a visa like category. That. You know, that you, you write the qualifications, you create the procedures, you tell people, yes, we are going to create an orderly uh, legal means for you to come from where you are to the United States. And, and as long as you play by the rules, we're going to get a significant number of people here and, and at least reduce the pressure. 
uh, create an alternative to walking from Honduras to the Rio Grande. Um, the asylum system isn't working. It's not designed for masses of people. Um, it was designed for basically one by one uh, judgments of whether somebody is worthy of humanitarian protection. It's not designed for backlogs of thousands of people. Um, the Central Americans brought the system to its knee uh, 20 years ago in the early 1990s. You'll remember their backlog reached almost a million people at one point. So, I mean, we're repeating the mistakes of the past at this point. Um, and one way to do it is just to say, rather than trying to fix the asylum system and make it do something it was never designed to do, to say we're going outside that system entirely. We're going to create a different approach for these people. Um, and we're, going to, we're just going to deal with this as a one-off. They're in our neighborhood. They can walk to our borders. They have a, there's a long history of migration from those countries to ours. Many of their families are here already. So let's let's figure out a way to let a good number of them in in an orderly process, um, and we'll save money and save uh, political uh, angst um, in large measure. Roberto, we got to take a break, and uh, we'll be right back. Hello, I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we wanted to tell you about a podcast we co-host. It's called Displaced, and we have conversations about the global refugee crisis and ways to go about solving it. It's a podcast that's a collaboration between Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work. On the show, we have long-form conversations about topics like why we need alternatives to refugee camps, how to understand the use of chemical weapons in Syria, and what should be changed about the ways we provide humanitarian aid to displaced people. So if you're interested in these issues, subscribe to Displaced. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're talking today with Roberto Suro, uh, professor of journalism and public policy at the University of Southern California. Roberto, you've been following the migration scene for a long time as a scholar, as a journalist, as a policy wonk. How different is the debate today than it was, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Or are we just replaying the same old themes? Well, this is um, this one is an oldie but a goodie. But, you know, there are there are a variety of different songs, you know, in this repertoire. This is one of them. Uh, it's very different than the Mexican li labor migrant theme. It's a different, different kind of problem. Um, and it's certainly different than the sort of larger conversation of immigration's role in the economy. So no one is thinking about these migrants as potential workers or as potential contributors to a high-tech economy um, or the kind of people we need to ensure that uh, there are enough workers to pay the social security bills for uh, boomers. It's a different discourse. Um, and it's come up before uh, with, with migrants from these same countries, as I said, primarily El Salvador um, in the, um, 18, the 1880s. <laughs> Seems like a long time. Hasn't been quite a century, Alex, yeah. but feels like it sometimes. Yeah. We just go back and forth on these things. So yeah. it's happened before. Um, we, we've, you know, the, the, the challenge here is uh, what do we do when there's a humanitarian crisis in our neighborhood? When it's people who, when people who can walk to our border, it's a whole different story. 
Um, it, it changes the entire dynamic. Uh, the, the logic of humanitarian uh, protection typically is you keep them as far away as possible while you figure out who you're going to admit. And then once you make the adjudication offshore, and then you bring people in once you've determined they're worthy. Here, they're coming right to the door, knocking on it, almost trick or treat. We're here. Well, and demanding admission. And demanding admission. We yeah. want to come in. And that, that becomes, then you're adjudicating, you have to let them in and then you adjudicate them, which is a really problematic because it takes time. Uh, you have to figure out what to do with them in the meanwhile. And then you have to figure out what you do with the people who you say no to. So it's a, a whole different set of problems. Uh, you know, the other very specific issue that's different than other than labor migrants, for example, is that these individuals have a statutory right to enter the country and ask asylum. We we are they they have permission to enter the country by our laws, by international agreements. They can come in and say, I need protection. And that's different than somebody who says, I need work. Somebody who says, I need work, we can slam the door in their face and send them back. Somebody who says, I need protection, we are obligated to say, okay, tell me about it. So that it presents a very different set of policy challenges. Um, and when you get large numbers of people doing that all at once, uh, you then have very substantial bureaucratic challenges as well. So the Trump administration says about pointing to the bureaucratic challenges you're mentioning here as well. Right. People come to the border. We have to let them in. Uh, they can say anything. And suddenly we are stuck with them here for years as lawyers keep these things going. So what we're going to do is adopt a detention policy that will be a deterrent. Now, Trump ran into huge problems with the separated children uh, policy. Even that was too much for most Americans uh, to swallow. But the policy now being considered, the so-called binary choice is either you be separated from your kid or we will detain you with your child. Uh, it's if that's where the administration goes, will that face the same kind of political opposition as the separation policy, or will we be able to sell that one? Well, just as a footnote here, and not an insignificant footnote, uh, Trump didn't invent that policy. Um, it, it goes way back, and it was implemented in larger numbers by the Obama administration, uh, which detained large numbers of people uh, the Obama administration invented the so-called rocket docket, where uh, people were sitting in containers, looking at a TV screen, talking to a judge who was in a different state with 30-second hearings to decide whether they were, um, were going to be admitted or not. So, But the Obama administration didn't separate kids from parents. No, it didn't. The one, the one distinction right. is separation. Right. And, and that, you know, the, the, Trump tried it and it didn't work. Um, the Obama administration ran detention centers, which ran afoul of the federal courts. The Trump, the Obama administration handled children in ways that ran afoul of the federal courts. So you can't put this all on Trump. Um, he, he was he has, for the most part, with the exception of going to the extreme of family separation, been implementing policies that were in place when he took office. The strategy of deterring false claims by making it really unpleasant to come and ask for asylum is an Obama strategy. Um, and it hasn't worked. It didn't work for Obama and it hasn't worked for Trump. Um, it's one of these situations where 
the motivation to come outweighs the prospect uh, of having to spend a period of time under unpleasant circumstances in a detention center. So um, if, you, if you're not going to deter people by uh, pushing as far as you can with what U.S. law permits in the way we treat people, uh, then what are the alternatives? Um, I, don't, I don't believe that processing, trying to fix processing, is a very good fix. Uh, the, you know, you recall that the last time the asylum system was overwhelmed by Central Americans, we just did kind of blanket fixes. We never tried to process them all. We did, we did, you know, mass adjudications and temporary protective status, all kinds of different fixes, some of which you were involved in inventing um, to get around the problems of trying to adjudicate people individually. And I think we're back at that again. Um, there's no way to, to try and work through each of these cases um, that doesn't result either with saying, all right, go live in Los Angeles, wear an ankle bracelet, check in every six months, and we'll get back to you in three years for a hearing. Um, or, and we're not going to hold them in, in detention for that long. Um, and we can't send them back. So there has to be a, a solution outside well, the, the, of this. The Trump answer to that is we'll keep them in Mexico. That's what's coming, right? The, the idea that the policy will be announced that they will, if you apply for asylum between ports of entry, you will be denied. You won't be able to apply for asylum. You have to go to a port of entry. And if you go to a port of entry, you'll be told to wait in Mexico, take a number and come back in a few months. That's where we're heading towards, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, it, they can try that. Um, you, I mean, let's play that out and imagine what is the scene going to be like if you've got um, 10, 20, 30, 60,000 Central Americans camped out um, in Tijuana, in, um, uh, in Nogales, I mean, along the border cities, um, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. What does Mexico do? Set up camps? Well, no, it's a you horrible. Call in, call a, in the UN. Yeah, it's a horrible humanitarian story. The question is whether will the Trump administration care? Will the American people care if people are in, if this is happening in Mexico? Well, what the unknown in that formula is what would happen if people really pushed back on Trump immigration policies? That hasn't happened. There's been he. We know this already about our president that that he will unwind in any given direction until he bumps into something, until somebody pushes back. And then often he'll go, okay, never mind, and, and retreat or find a different way. Uh, on these issues, when people have pushed back, for example, on the family separation policy, he's turned around. Um, on There have been other issues as well. Well, there were three versions of the Muslim ban before he right, got exactly. one the court could yeah. accept. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's he floated the idea of drastically reducing um, the visas for family members and then retreated from it. So, uh, you know, at some point, if there is an effective response, um, not likely to happen in the, in the circumstances of this campaign, but depending on how the election turns out, potentially afterwards, um, it's unlikely that he would continue this policy. But if no one stands up to him, um, we know this now. We've, he's been president long enough um, that we know the pattern is. He'll keep going. 
and and it'll unravel. Um, he'll continue making up facts, finding boogeymen, creating threats, and proposing outlandish policies until someone tells him to stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roberto, let me take you in a slightly broader context here. About a year or two ago, uh, you wrote a piece um, about the Statue of Liberty, uh, and this was after a back and forth between Stephen Miller and Jim Acosta, I think, about the meaning of the Statue of Liberty in the White House press room. And as I recall, one of the things that you said was that maybe the Emma Lazarus poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses, which, by the way, is where Tempest Tossed comes from, as you know, uh, the name of this podcast, um, you said that that may not be the right narrative anymore for the 20th, 21st century why did you think that? Why do you think that? And and what narrative would you propose instead as the American narrative on immigration? Yeah, I don't think it was the narrative, the dominant narrative ever. Um, it 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 speaks to a segment of migration, and in in some cases, and to some extent, the Central American migration is the Emma Lazarus migration. These people are somewhat tempest tossed. But the dominant narrative of migration to the United States then and now has been strivers, has been people who say, I'm not going to stay here. I, I will get up and move to go someplace better. Um, I, I, they're not tempest tossed. They're people who, who, who sail through the storm purposely um, and with direction. Uh, and with energy, and we have embraced those people, and we should be willing to say, you know, if you want to come here to make money and and improve your life in very material ways, and you've got good ideas, well, why not? And, and that's not the Emma Lazarus. They are not the wretched, um, and they've not always been the wretched, and we should be willing to say that we benefit from immigrants, that we want smart, aggressive people. We want people with money. We want people with education. We want all kinds of people, not just the Tempest Toss, but others as well. Does that play into the, the, the Trump position that we should be admitting more skilled workers and fewer unskilled workers? Well, let me remind you, that's not only Trump's position. The Democrats have advocated that in comprehensive immigration reform through all the bills going back 12 years. So there's nothing controversial about saying that our system has skewed more than it should towards family migration, and we should find ways to bend it towards merit-based. There's been no dispute about that. Some of the specific measures that Trump was castigated for proposing, such as uh, eliminating the uh, so-called sibling visa. So if you're an immigrant here and you have adult brothers or sisters- no, If you're a US citizen here. Yeah, if you're a citizen, US yeah. citizen here, you've yeah. got adult uh, brothers and sisters who are abroad um, under current law. You can attempt to sponsor them. It takes a long time, but it exists. Democrats have been willing to throw that visa category over the side for a long time. Uh, yet when Trump um, it proposed it, it was, oh, the horror. Though with Trump went much further, he also proposed that parents of U.S. citizens not come in on a preference, and that would have kept Melania's parents out. Right. Well, yeah. So he, he I mean, like many things, Trump, he took took an idea and, 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 and looked for the extreme of it. But in principle, 
the idea of saying our immigration preferences have have been very deliberately, very consciously emphasized family unification, and we should we should move it a little bit more towards merit based um, is not controversial, as you know. Uh, lots of Democrats, lots of progressives, lots of immigrant rights advocates have said we can do this and we can do it in a sensible way. And and there have been there, Democrats voted for a statute along with a lot of Republicans in 2013 that would have taken us down that road in a, a much more measured way than what the Republicans but are proposing. The other part of the, the Trump proposal, which was signing on to a proposal uh, that put forward by by a few senators, it would have cut legal immigration in half. Right. Well, that's, that's a sensible? different right. Yeah. No, that's a different that's a different question. Yeah. And as with you know, one of the the difficulties of dealing with the Trump administration on policy issues is they take they take ideas that are part of the sensible discourse and then distort them um, into these kind of uh, almost parodies, cartoons. Yeah, I mean they're cartoons. So um, it's an absurd notion to say, all right, we're just going to cut uh, immigration in half and, and, and not um, see enormous disruptions in our economy, um, in the, the ways families operate, the way universities operate. Um, it'll be, it would be enormous costs um, for no obvious benefit um, except for those people who ideologically believe that uh, we need to restore the United States to being a white Christian nation. Well, on that, we'll stop. Roberto. Oh, well. <laughs> That's we'll a let, hell of a punctuation we'll, point, Alex. We'll, we'll, we'll let people pause over that yeah. one for a while. Right. But um, look, thanks so much for being here. Really interesting discussion. You're Come back welcome. to Dodge 112 uh, sometime. Always. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Elenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That is tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com.